This is part 17 of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part one, so if you haven't heard that, go back. and the Rider. Part 17. The Horse. The streets around the park where Peter Quinnell Live and the Husky Boys had played two-hand triage were dark and silent. As night had fallen, the residents who had begun the process of unboarding the shop fronts and pulling the tyre spikes up from the road retreated to the river caves which had been their refuge. All around the town, the border fires roared to life. The fire watchers, not told about the death of Chuck Pernod, lit them as had been their custom. A fog settled on the streets. The dogs who'd hidden in the stormwater drains during the day flattened themselves and crawled yelping and whimpering into the open. By night, the progress of the day that had just passed seemed small and silly. Why try to reclaim the town from chaos when chaos resumed as soon as the sun went down? In big cities, it was possible to pretend that you could marshal and regulate the darkness with lights and traffic and 24-hour stores, with electricity and people and commerce and an unflinching expectation of order. But in country towns, the dark crept at every edge. Here, the streets that should have been illuminated by shop fronts and council lighting were dim and bare, and the unlaboured confidence that true indifference to the night required had been shattered by the crime wave. The triumph of the killing of Chuck Pernod was diminished. The joy provoked by what had appeared to be the wrestling back of order from an agent of chaos seemed desperate and foolish. There was no more sense in celebrating the death of Chuck Pernod than in celebrating the rising of the sun in the morning. Everywhere, a dense and unfriendly quiet had settled in. The streets grew close. They dampened what little sound was generated by the empty district. Somewhere, the dogs howled. The noise was dull and strange. Fog shrouded the moon, and as Peter looked around with growing consternation at his predicament, alone in a strange and lawless town after nightfall, the husky boys began to disperse. With wordless nods between them, they turned and ambled out of the park, each alone, none choosing to walk with another to whatever strange and aesthetically affected grotto they called home. Hey, said Peter. Hey, hey. He waved frantically at the nearest husky boy and was ignored. He stumbled towards another who glared at him with such potent irritation he lost his footing and tumbled to the grass. A thick sob forced its way out of his throat and the husky boys turned as one, smirked, and resumed their exit. A wild panic gripped Peter. 
He staggered to his feet and bolted towards the nearest husky boy. When the lad turned around, Peter froze on the spot. Eventually the boy continued. Peter waited until the distance between them was 20 metres or so, then continued to tail him. He seethed with the betrayal, abandoned, surrendered to the elements by a traitorous fraud, a faker, a sloppy construction of lies and misrepresentations. He felt both vindicated in his earlier suspicions about Jackie and foolish for not having trusted his instincts more fully. A friend would have allowed him an afternoon's indulgence in cards, surely. The husky boy slipped down a side alley, elegant and swift. Peter followed him. How? He screamed internally. How could she fail to comprehend the value of his effort to endear not just himself, but her by association to this strange and fractious community? Their peacemaking efforts would be soon forgotten. Hearts and minds required winning, and whose were harder to win than teenagers? The ground was rough, uneven tarmac, littered with potholes and detritus, but the husky boy danced among it nimbly, lengthening the gap between himself and Peter. Peter broke into an ungainly jog, picking around the bricks and stones that covered the ground, but as he endeavoured to keep one eye on the husky boy, his toe hit a lump of concrete and he tripped. He lurched forward and regained his balance, just in time to see the boy disappear over the top of a fence a little way ahead. He limped onto the spot where he thought the boy had jumped and peered over. It was the backyard of a dingy terrace house, no more than three metres wide, stretching perhaps ten metres towards a sunroom sided by cream fibro boards. The yard was littered with a child's toys, a tricycle, a plastic cubby and so on, all of them dusty and forlorn. The house itself was an imposing three-storey structure that was strikingly monochrome in the moonlight. Wide black windows peered over ghost-white sills. In the corner of the yard, an enormous tree stretched great leafless branches out towards the house. There was no movement in the house or in the yard. But something moved. Nothing quantifiable. Nothing in the air or the physical structures that lent itself to easy categorization, but a lack of stillness that raged and boiled in the air. A flicker in the window, a shudder in the leaves. For the first time, a cold thread of fear wriggled into Peter's brain. Something about this lonely passageway implied malignant possibility. He shrank away from the fence and began to pick his way back up the alley towards the road. He shivered with misery. It had been mild during the day, but as the night air cooled and a southerly breeze rushed into town, Peter's fears for his comfort escalated. Where could he lay his head? There may be hotels, but even if they hadn't been gutted by the crime wave, they might demand he show his ID, and then the jig would be up. He staggered wildly through the alley, shaking fences and gates in search of a loose latch through which to slip. One of these darkened houses must surely have a mattress for poor Peter Quinnell Live to lay his head upon. If not a mattress, then a blanket he could throw into the bottom of a close and cosy wardrobe, safe and ensconced. If not a blanket, then a drawer of old jumpers. If not jumpers, then a pile of newspaper. He began to fantasise about curling up on a pile of soft and musty paper, like the old farm dog in a stale corner of the barn, alone but warm and comfortable. He ached with the thought. He began to weep, first silently and pitifully, then he found that it felt good. 
It warmed him to cry. He thought about his own misery, abject and undeserved, and sobbed in enormous throbbing gasps, silent for seconds at a time, punctuated by explosive inhaling. He thought about the lonely alleyway, the betrayal by Jackie, the utter distance between a warm bed and his tired legs. He considered himself a particular fan of comfort. He was fond of telling people how much he liked to be cosy, to be curled up, as though other people felt differently about coziness. He imagined how it might feel now to crawl into a bed and disappear into a blanket, heavy and a little musty, to put his head on a lumpy pillow and close his eyes. How transportative it must be. How easily someone might close their eyes and when they opened them, find themselves not in an abandoned granny flat in a ruined border town, but on their own bed, safe and clean, a week ago perhaps. A Saturday afternoon, no dead Greeks, no early morning flight, no red-headed youth, perhaps longer ago to open one's eyes and find oneself on a strange but familiar long ago afternoon on one's parents' bed, the lights on, the window open, the smell of dinner wafting up the stairs, their whole life a moment in an afternoon nap. How magnificent that would be. Rain began to fall gently on the alleyway and a wailing commotion rose up from a property ahead. Peter, disoriented and exhausted, pinwheeled frantically towards it. He leaned heavily on the gate and it pitched open and Peter was confronted by a party of attractive young people, chaotically disrobed and in the midst of some kind of sexual game. They shrieked in delight when they saw him. They turned towards him and shook their genitals savagely. The pendulous swaying of erect penises and the rapid shimmy of breasts enthralled him for a moment. Then he shrank back in humiliation and slammed the gate. On he stumbled. The air was full of sound now. Shouting, scraping, tearing, burning sounds. A dim light shone beneath an ancient wooden gate and he grabbed heavily at it. The gate gave out, tearing off its rusty hinges and tumbling to the ground with a fibrous thud. A corner broke off. Termites scurried into the undergrowth, slick and disgusting in the gloom. Peter looked aghast. He tried to focus on the house ahead and noticed a figure in a white wicker chair. It was a very old woman with perfectly white hair that shone in the moonlight. She raised one trembling hand and beckoned to him. He approached nervously. Hello, he quavered. She waited until he was just a metre or so away from her to greet him in a soft but steady voice. Good evening, she said. It's dangerous to be out in the streets after dark. You should be careful. I was playing cards, he explained. In the park, I met some young men. Wonderful, real characters. They were playing a fantastic game. Two-hand triage. She closed her eyes and nodded for a moment, then squinted hard at his face. Never heard of it, she grunted definitively. Uh, well, Peter said. Well... His confidence was shaken slightly by the old woman's rejection of his account. His understanding was that the elderly were familiar with esoteric card games. Anyway, he tried again, well, there's good news because the crime wave is over. I ended it this afternoon when I apprehended the ringleader myself, Chuck Pernod, I believe. I acted in the interests of the community, he added smoothly. The old woman sat up in her chair. 
over, she ruminated, and Mr. Pernot in police custody. Peter squirmed a little. The situation demanded lethal force. Now the old woman was interested. She leaned forward in her wicker chair. You used lethal force, she asked, a mocking note in her voice, against Chuck Pernot, a hardened criminal and brawler. He slept with a snub-nosed pistol in his right hand, safety off, a very dangerous man, always on the move. I wonder how it is that you were able to kill him. Peter shifted uncomfortably where he stood. Tell me, she continued, with what did you mete out your capital punishment? A trap? You look like the kind of man who would set a trap. A guitar string stretched between two trees, glass in his dinner, a concealed spike pit? Ah, she exclaimed, you seem like the type for a concealed spike pit. Well, put me out of my misery. It was a shoe, Peter told her with as much confidence as he could marshal. He couldn't sense how she might respond to the information. A shoe! A fantastic detail! Oh well, tell me more. A sneaker, stiletto heel, a boot perhaps, a clog? It was a lady's shoe, he confirmed unhappily. The woman's tone had again turned to mocking. Her eyes widened as she prepared to unleash another salvo of sarcasm when a dishevelled young man, black fringe dangling in his eyes, a strange hessian vest hanging loosely from his skinny shoulders, burst out of the house and wailed at the old woman. Grandmother! He shrieked. Grandmother! Her sarcastic lips straightened and she turned towards him, her eyes suddenly deep wells of compassion. The young man was horribly skinny, shoulder blades poking through dull and greasy white skin. He wore filthy brown corduroy pants fastened at the top with a piece of rope and large felt slippers that seemed to have been stitched by hand. He was maybe in his late twenties with foppish long hair and a curled moustache that provided a strange accent to what Peter might have otherwise described as peasant garb. He scurried from the house to her chair and flopped down, legs side saddle and his head in her lap. I need a tonic, grandmother, he whined. All evening I've been vexed by one egg or another. My bed calls and I will answer. Won't you procure a poultice for your poor Gideon? Will you give me succor? Will you not abandon me? Tears welled up in her eyes. Of course, dear Gideon, she croaked. But we have a guest. Say hello to our guest. Gideon rose to his feet and stared at Peter. His eyes were psychotic pools. He put his hands together in a prayer-like pose and Peter noticed for the first time his fingernails, which were crooked and uneven, but uniform in their filthiness. Each extended no less than a couple of centimetres from his fingertips. All were black in the moonlight. In her chair, the ancient woman smiled benignly. Good evening, Gideon growled. The strange posh affectation was gone from his voice. Enjoying yourself with grandmother, are you? Out after dark, bursting through our gate, tearing it from its hinges, are ya? He reached down and plucked a strand of tall yellowing grass from the garden bed and began to swish it around. Thinking of running, are ya? Do you deserve to run? Are you sure you deserve it? To run is a privilege to breathe deeply and flex your muscles and feel the earth disappear under your feet 
a bit and bridle are nothing to the horse, the horse may run. No one appreciates the horse as an equal. The horse experiences clarity and certainty. It may run, it may do. An unimaginable privilege. The rider imagines he has control, but his success rests on the success of others. Who is the horse? Gideon called out and stepped towards Peter. Peter's stomach turned and he stepped back in alarm. Whom the rider? His voice nearly a shriek and Peter flailed back and bolted for the gate. As he reached it, he grabbed the post to swing around the corner and with a wet crack, the fence snapped and sagged in. Peter felt a great kick of fear. He sprinted up the alleyway, turning around only as he approached the road and was relieved to see Gideon standing motionless by the gate, not following, only standing and watching. He shoved his hands into the pockets of his pants and with a sudden wild delight drew out the page of the street directory Jackie had torn out in the post office. Marlborough Street, number five. He laughed wildly for just a moment. Then the growling throb of a car engine cut him short. A silver Saab eased around the corner and Peter was confronted by the red-headed youth from the train. His waxy, ash-coloured flesh seemed to extend from the soft chrome of the Saab. Vehicle and rider appeared to Peter like the type of cheap toy car you can get, where a single piece of plastic is moulded to comprise the entire interior, seat and steering wheel and driver. Through the gloom, the redhead grinned cheerfully, illuminated slightly by the glow of the dashboard display. The passenger side windscreen was blasted in by a shotgun and the seat entirely covered in a thick, glistening bloodstain. Draped over the side window was a seeping corpse, its legs in, arms out, hands dragging a horrible trail along the ground. Peter began to shake uncontrollably. He looked back up the alleyway, which seemed to telescope out and out, fence railing after roller door after gate, and attempted a desperate shambling jog up the alleyway. From around the corner slunk a pack of the long, flat, strange dogs that had spent the day sleeping in the storm water drains. They stared at him with huge, hungry black eyes. In desperation, he charged back through the gate. Gideon and the old woman stood holding each other and broke apart with fury when he reappeared. But there was no choice. He raced past them in wild terror, wrenched open the back door of their house, barreled into the darkness, which was thick and nearly complete. Brownish light filtered through their filthy windows. Boots clocked on the cobblestones outside. Peter launched himself forward. The counters and tables were covered in pots of liquid. Every available surface was thick with dust. With wild speed, he launched himself forward again. He found a long corridor and raced up it. At the end, a deadbolted door. He turned the latch and it opened onto the street again. The growl of an engine was still in the air and he raced forward into the front yard of the place across the street, over their back fence, through the next lot, scrambling through a hedge, around a pool, down an alleyway. He burst out into the open again, scratched and shaking. The air was silent at least. He was at the edge of the river. At his feet, the bank gave way to a two metre drop down to the water. As he peered down, he saw candles being pinched out in yawning caves in the riverbank. Pairs of ghostly hands drew fishing nets into the caves. A bottle whizzed by his head and shattered on a rock. He ducked away from the edge, retreating to the deep shade of a wattle tree. 
Peter fished around in his pocket for the scrap of street directory again and held it out in the moonlight with trembling hands. He found the river on the map and looked around and realised with a thrill that almost directly opposite, on the far shore, sat the old power station. Just a couple of kilometres west and in from the river was Marlborough Street. He turned and began to hurry up the river. His pace was a broken scurry, at times rushing as his terror welled up, at times slowing as the stitch in his side ached. Only a few hundred metres up the path he arrived with dismay at a collapse in the riverbank. The earth dropped off sharply, and where the cave-in ended a steep slope back up to the top made Peter reluctantly turn back up to the street on the far side of the riverfront houses. He crept along the dark footpath, hugging the fences, staying close to the low iron railings. His head throbbed and his legs ached. He thought again about the dogs, their thin, flat bodies, the way they crept along the ground and he whimpered in fear. He jogged when he could. After 20 minutes, he rounded a corner and turned with a sudden surprise and delight into Marlborough Street. And as he did, the Saab growled around the corner, the red-headed youth hanging out the driver's side window. Peter turned and waited for him in helpless defeat. Hiya, the youth grinned. Pop in the back. There was no choice that Peter could see. He climbed into the back of the Saab. It was freezing. He clicked his seatbelt and shivered. The red-headed youth twisted around to see Peter. He winked and patted his knee. I know this is where she is, he grinned. She has my money. That's why I need her. I need you to tell me which house she's in. You've got it on your little piece of map I saw you stuff in your pocket. Peter stared at the red-headed youth's eyes in the rearview mirror helplessly. He felt thick and disappointing and wondered if it would work for him to just say nothing. The redhead laughed. This dead guy smells so bad, he said, rolling his eyes. It's perfect. You don't even have to look at him to be disgusted. Peter swallowed and shook his head. Guess what happened to him? No, no, wait, don't. I'll tell you what happened to him. He was driving this car. I shot his friend with my shotgun. He tried to run, but I caught him. I made him drive to his house to find all the money he could. Then I hung him out the window until he died. Peter's heart began to pound. I can take you to the money, he gasped. It's all there. I'll take you there now. The red-headed youth nodded and smiled. That's great, dude. Thanks. It sucks when you don't have enough money for the things you need. Peter nodded. He couldn't see where this was going. It would suck if not every dollar was accounted for. That would definitely suck. Actually, if any of the money was missing, I would attribute my disappointment to you. Peter laughed a tiny, watery giggle. Of course, of course, he spluttered. I understand. The red-headed youth jammed his foot on the accelerator and the car lurched up the street. He raised one eyebrow in the rearview mirror. Number five, Peter told him thickly. The house at 5 Marlborough Street was low, brick, dark, a blank suburban staple introduced by a small garden sparsely planted with flowering shrubs, geraniums and bridal veil, 
A bronze-finished aluminium screen hung loosely open, the door behind it yawning out of sight. The red-headed youth opened the glove box and pulled out his strange and ornate shotgun. It had no trigger, but a large red button on the top of it above the stock. He turned smiling to Peter. How are you settling into all this? He smiled. Are you vibing with me? He stopped and waited for Peter to respond. Uh, Yes, Peter mumbled. Phenomenal, phenomenal. He hooked an arm around the seat to face Peter properly and lowered his voice to a conspiratorial murmur. You're probably wondering why I've been haunting you. Who is this awful, awful narrative device, this unstoppable malevolent force? I know, I know, sometimes I wonder the same thing. You might think that to be truly unknowable, you must know yourself intimately. If I am to defy definition at every turn, mustn't I understand the definitions before I arrive at them and consider myself in relation to them? But the answer is no. He winked at Peter. I am unknown even to myself. There is no end to my mystery. Where does my conscience begin and end? What will I do? What will I not do? If you asked me, I couldn't tell you. He smiled, an unsettling parody of cheeriness. Maybe that's why I'm drawn to you. You expect everything so deeply. There are no mysteries to you at all, Peter Quinnell Live. There are no spaces between the ticks of the clock. One second, then the next. But here I am, adding ticks between the ticks. Now, said the redhead, sighing. I'm going inside the house and I really need you to stay put because I'm bringing my shotgun and if I find anyone alive in there, I'm going to rip a hole in them so big no one will know they were ever a person. Can we do that? Please don't come inside. The red-headed youth opened the door of the Saab and extended a long and slender leg out and stood up with a strange wobbling motion. He swayed in the night breeze. Peter's skin crawled as his human shape swam and distorted. He appeared now as he had on the railway platform, an indistinct jumble of bags and boxes that disguised human limbs and torso and a head. But the shotgun jutted out from the place his right hand ought to have been, and he mounted the steps up to the house energetically. In a bare cavity under the laundry, tucked between brick pillars and boards, Jackie screamed silently. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne. If you'd like to support it, you can make a donation at ko-fi.com slash maxlaverne. And please send me a message. You can DM me on Twitter, prawn underscore meat. People on podcasts always say this, but I would personally appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts if you use it. And consider subscribing to my Substack, infinitegossip.substack.com, which has a whole heap of my short stories. If you know anyone who's into cops, make sure you tell them about this podcast, because next week in part 18, there's two of them. Two cops. Nothing else to add to that. Well, thanks.